It's Saturday, but it is Friday in your mind if you want it to be. And we are working for Crusoe, Sam Park and John Ramey, with a special edition on this Saturday, January 13th, 2024. We had every intention of publishing on Friday the 12th, as we always do, but I had, or I was on assignment and I was unable to participate. So thank you, Sam, and thank you, everybody, for waiting a day. And because we have waited until Saturday, incredible news continues to break with regard to the Red Sea crisis the Houthi group in Yemen and U.S. and United Kingdom airstrikes on Houthi territory in Yemen. There are huge ripples in the global supply chain, oil tankers turning around, Volvo and Tesla suspending production in Europe. Also, we will cover the Bangladeshi election. No surprise in the result, but plenty of controversy and a fascinating political plot that goes back decades. Good morning, Sam. Thanks for waiting until Saturday. Oh, you're quite welcome, John. It's great to see you. So because we're not recording until Saturday, we are able to comment on a second round of strikes from the U.S. military in Yemen on the Houthi movement, the Houthi group. This, of course, the Iranian-backed militant group that has been attacking shipping in the Red Sea. The Houthis say they're attacking ships that are bound for Israel. The Houthis showing support for Hamas and the Israel Hamas war, but of course, non-involved uh, ships have come under attack as well. 12% of global commerce goes through the Suez Canal. How do you get to the Suez Canal? Through the Red Sea. So this is a huge deal for the world. And on Thursday, there was an initially huge strike, 60 targets involving missiles and aircraft from both the US and British militaries, and then a second round of attacks from the U.S. military overnight Friday into Saturday. The Houthis are saying through various spokespeople that these attacks had no damage. The U.S. military said they were effective strikes. Um, But this has huge impact when you have four oil tankers turning around, for example. We talked last week about the Danish shipping giant Maersk suspending shipping in the Red Sea. Along Along with all of their major competitors. I mean, last week, the, the dollar figure on commerce affected was $220 billion, and that only continues to grow. Container Shipping container rates are spiking. There are any number of data points that are um, very concerning. And then there's also the issue of making sure, if you're the United States or the West, that the Red Sea crisis doesn't become too inextricably linked to the Hamas-Israel war, because that's its own Gordian knot. Correct. I mean, the the implications for this are potentially enormous. I should say, though, that you're right that container shipping rates are increasing very dramatically. In fact, the fine folks over at Drury, the maritime shipping consultancy, or research firm, we should say, uh, they decided to update their world container index uh, more regularly than they normally do, which is usually every two weeks. They issued a a weekly update this week in addition to last week, uh, and it's risen considerably uh, to above $3,000 per 40-foot container on average worldwide, that is. And that is, as we will recall from last week, uh, an increase from a a 2023 low of about $1,200. And in fact, Drury also issued a specific reading for shipping through the Red Sea, and that's about $4,400. So it's 
increased very dramatically. We should recall, however, that in 2021, at around the time of the Ever Given incident, during which the Ever Given, a large freight container ship, got lodged sideways in the Suez Canal, shipping rates from Drury at that time, average, mind you, mind you were $22,000. So it's still nowhere near the height of the supply chain crisis that we were experiencing in the immediate wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that episode is worth keeping in mind here. As people might recall, during and immediately after the pandemic, there was said to be, anyway, a large-scale re-examination of supply chains in the aggregate. That is, supply chains were thought to be fragile and too dependent on each individual link holding up. And so, rhetorically at least, companies that had a global reach thought that it would be worth their time to try and make supply chains more robust. That is, to build redundancies into them. And, Slightly less efficient, heaven forbid. Yeah, actually, perhaps considerably less efficient. And John, as you'll recall from the early childhood of working for Crusoe, uh, which was in many ways a simpler time, uh, <laughs> we speculated that building less efficient because more redundant supply chains would make it more difficult for central bankers to fight inflation. So here you go. The Suez Canal and the Red Sea waterways in the aggregate are a crucial link in the supply chains that have zero redundancy. And this has not been addressed. Whatever else companies might have been able to do, reshoring, and the like, this has not been addressed. Now, it will be very difficult. It, you know, you can, it will be very hard to, for instance, build a railroad all the way across the African continent for many different reasons. Uh, the point I would like to make, though, that if these airstrikes are intended to reestablish safe shipping lanes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, that's not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think, anyway. I believe that if you're a global shipping giant like Maersk or Hapag Lloyd or any of these companies, you're probably at least looking at what how it's going to be if you have to reroute your shipping for some time to come, at least a number of months. And because if I'm Maersk, I'm really thinking hard about this. And sure, shipping around the bottom of Africa takes more time and is therefore more expensive. But shipping through the Red Sea will cause you to have to pay much higher insurance rates, for example. So the costs, at least, might be competitive just to go the long way around. And you mentioned, for instance, Volvo and Tesla in Europe suspending their operations. Yeah, they if can't I, get components. That's right. If I were operating those companies, I would have at least have people looking at the idea of building in 
extended shipping times into our operational procedures because this situation could persist for quite some time. In some ways, and we might hope that this won't be the case, but this could end up being something similar, although I believe smaller, than the Arab oil embargo of the early 70s, in which Arab nations decided to stop shipping oil to the West because of the Yom Kippur War between Israel and some of their fellow Arab nations. And the West basically just toughed that out. They did not alter their policy towards Israel as a result of the embargo, and they suffered the very dramatic inflationary consequences of cutting themselves off from Arab oil. And this had ripple effects for many years. I mean, it ended not one, but two presidencies in the United States. The embargo really didn't work. Uh, in, In the end, it collapsed. And I think that's something important to keep in mind. One thing about this uh, Red Sea crisis that you mentioned, you have your uh, index that you're looking at, Drury. There are a number of indices that I personally have not really paid much attention to before, and now I'm kind of sifting through them. The Benchmark Shanghai Containerized Freight Index, right? Up 16% this week compared last, right? And up 114% since mid-December. But what really caught my eye was that that same index points out that containers out of Chinese ports, that's what this checks, kind of spot non-contract rates. Um, This week, this week, from China to the United States West Coast, not involving the Suez Canal whatsoever, up 43%. That's right. And that's because there's a, it's sort of like oil, right? If, If one link in the chain breaks, then it raises prices worldwide for the same commodity, in this case, shipping capacity. Now, there is additional shipping capacity built in that we didn't have a couple years ago, but it doesn't matter where the ships might happen to be going necessarily, uh, because if there's a shortage of ships, all shipping increases in cost. You mentioned oil. Uh, Four oil tankers turned around yesterday mid-voyage to avoid the Red Sea. Five other tankers made diversions or paused navigation. The U.S. military is basically saying, stay out of the area. It's not safe right now. Exactly. And so if you're... I mean, you're not going to argue with the U.S. If the U.S. military says we can't control the waterways, that's bad business to try to prove them wrong. That's right. And so if the United States is trying to establish a deterrent, so far it's not working. Now, this could take a long time to establish that sort of deterrent. In a way... The people who are effectively establishing a deterrent are the Houthis. They're deterring shipping from going through the Red Sea and Suez Canal waterways. And this is going to take some time to sort out. And I think, for instance, there's some question as to what role Iran is playing in this whole particular exchange. Well, we talked about it last week. Iran backs the Houthis in that they give them weapons, cash, maybe food. We don't know exactly what the you know the itemized list is but they don't necessarily what what you said they were they were clients they're not puppets exactly the houthis make their own decisions ostensibly or they're able to just because they've got iranian bullets and arms doesn't mean that they're taking marching orders 
Yeah, exactly. Iran, if the Houthis want to do something, Iran can't really stop them from doing it. And that was my initial reading of it last week. And I've since seen some more professional analysis that confirms that view. Yesterday on uh, France 24, for example, they had an interview with a veteran of the sort of European think tank community whose name was Helen Lackner. And she's written numerous scholarly articles, as well as at least one book about Yemen. And she said essentially the same thing, is that Iran is probably not directing this. And if you think about this in more detail, that would seem to make sense. The Houthis, we sort of tend to lump them in with Hezbollah and Hamas and all the various uh, Iraqi and Syrian uh, Iranian client militia groups. But it's, I think, worth remembering that the Houthis, unlike, for instance, Hezbollah, uh, have been involved in an actual shooting war against the Saudis and uh, the United Arab Emirates for about eight years. And by the way, they're basically winning that war. Uh, on October 6th of last year, the Houthis and the Saudis were thought to be on the verge of some sort of peace accord, which would essentially ratify the Saudi withdrawal from Yemen that had been in place for almost two years at that point already. The Saudis' involvement in Yemen has been disastrous for them, and it's drawing resources away that they would much rather use for their very ambitious plans to modernize and diversify their own domestic economy. And instead of dumping money into the black hole of the war in Yemen, which again, they were basically losing. So the Houthis were on the verge of effectively, if not officially, becoming essentially the government of Yemen. And they could have at that point just taken the win and set about trying to, for instance, feed the people of their country, which is desperately poor and has been experiencing an awful humanitarian crisis all throughout the war. They didn't do that. Instead, they decided to try and interrupt global shipping through the Red Sea. And I think it's worth remembering that when the Suez Canal was first dug out by, let's face it, European imperialists for the sake of establishing faster global shipping, None of the littoral states of the Red Sea had anything like the military capacity to interrupt that shipping. But that was a century and a half ago. Nowadays, this is a problem and it's likely to remain a problem for a while. And just to return to Saudi Arabia for a moment, they have far and away the longest coastline on the Red Sea of any country. Still and all, they have condemned the United States and British strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, just because they're basically thinking to themselves, we're, we were almost out of the war in Yemen. We don't want to have anything to do with getting back into it. But some of their, in fact, I would imagine a great deal of their oil, virtually all of it that goes to Europe, for example, has to go that way you would think that their interest would be in restoring 
the security of global shipping through those waterways. But at least right now, that's not what they're saying. All right. Just to amplify your point about not lumping in the Houthis in Yemen with maybe these rustic, we think of Islamic State, we think of Hezbollah, we think of militias and just kind of ragtag, right? You understand my point? The targets that the U.S. military said they hit in Yemen belonging to the Houthis, that's not a bunch of ragtag gunmen. 60 targets, 16 sites, including, quote, command and control nodes, munitions depots, launching systems, production facilities, and air defense radar systems, right? That's right. That's that's not a ragtag bunch of dudes with AK-47s. That's right. And the amount of arms that Iran has been able to ship into Yemen throughout more than a decade now uh, is really considerable. You've, I'm sure you've seen some of the videos that the Houthis themselves have produced and posted on the internet of them attacking various freight ships. They've got helicopters. You know, it's not... Uh, uh, How? Why like, have we been sleeping on the Houthis? Like, I just, that was just one group I knew that was client clients of Iran. Again, in the century and a half that the Suez Canal has existed, this is the first time that anybody has thought to do this. And it goes back to the point I was making about supply chains. This was a vulnerability that's been there for a long time. It's just that nobody had either the weaponry or and the, audacity. The, and the interest, right. the, the self-defined interest in doing something like this. And now they're doing it. And that's why I think that the global sort of business community might be looking sort of long-term at the viability of the Red Sea and Suez Canal waterways as a shipping lane at all. Uh, again, even if the Houthi attacks ended right now, uh, if I were Maersk or any of the global companies that ship through there, I would be thinking very carefully about how I was going to approach this in the future for some time to come. Following the airstrikes from British and U.S. military forces, the governments of Australia, Bahrain, Canada, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and South Korea joined the U.S. and the U.K. in issuing a statement saying the aim is to de-escalate tensions and restore stability in the Red Sea, but also that these allies will not hesitate to defend lives and protect commerce in the critical waterway. So you and I not necessarily all that much on this podcast, but certainly in our conversations over the years, um, have inevitably returned to this concept of the 21st century being this hyper absurd, sped up, fast forward times two or four version of the 20th century. We're simultaneously having an, a, a farcical and tragic reenactment of the First World War in the Ukraine the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the effective stalemate there. We're having the Suez crisis again, and you pointed out how it's similar to the embargo of the early 70s, the oil um, embargo, the Suez crisis in 1956. Um, and then also you have these regional wars, which are alarmingly similar. And I heard Brett Stevens point this out. I have to admit this. I watched Brett Stevens on with Charlie Rose two journalists that I understand people might criticize me for paying attention to, but also two journalists who I think have had interesting things to say over the years. 
Brett Stevens said, if you compare what's going on now to the various regional wars leading up to the start of the Second World War, it's not dissimilar. You have regional conflicts where the water level keeps rising. This is his metaphor. And at a certain point, the individual kind of pools water level, washes over everything. For example, in the 30s, you had Chinese or uh, Japanese invasion of Manchuria. You had German uh, regional wars, Anschluss, right? Various localized tension. Uh, Italy invading Northern Africa, uh, uh, Libya, Abyssinia at the time. That if you stopped before the British responded to the German invasion of Poland in 1939, were just regional wars, right? If you if you take that kind of freeze frame right before the German invasion of Poland in 1939, it doesn't look terribly dissimilar to right now. I'm not saying we're about to have World War III. I'm just saying it's, it's yet a danger. A, it, it is. It's just it. This is a. There has never been a time so fraught in our lifetimes. Probably, this is the most dangerous time since the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. But that was just a bipolar circumstance where you yeah, only so had to geographically contained and you only had to worry about two governments making rational decisions and communicating right there's no way you can game theory and kind of think about the rational actions of the houthis okay now i don't want to get into the rationality or lack thereof here the the point i would make is that they're making a different sort of calculation that I should then that's a better way of putting that, it right that you and I might make right they have different priorities sure. from the the priorities of other players in the region let's just say but this is a situation as we've been talking about that's going to continue to play out for some time to come so we're going to have to keep a very careful eye on it because it could escalate uh but as I was saying before the impact on the global economy. For example, I think people at the Federal Reserve are keeping an eye on this very carefully because it will almost certainly have some sort of impact on their decisions vis-a-vis -vis interest rates going forward at their next meeting. Shall we pivot to the election in Bangladesh? I think so. Uh, there was an election last week and the Awami League, led by incumbent Sheikh Hasina, Prime Minister won election for the fourth consecutive time. Reportedly, 40% of eligible voters voted. The Awami League won 222 seats out of uh, the 300 total available. And the Jatya Sangsad, which is the House of the Nation, the supreme legislative body in Bangladesh, independent candidates, most of whom are reported to be kind of propped up dummy candidates by the Awami League, won 62 seats. There was controversy because the turnout number, as reported by the chief election commissioner, was initially reported at 28%. That was later retracted and uh, bumped up to, I suppose, a more palatable 40%. The United States uh, State Department has claimed the election was not free and fair. The United Kingdom's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office termed the election lacking the preconditions of democracy. Well put. Uh, yeah. The Economist, uh, a favorite here on Working for Crusoe, says through this election, Bangladesh has effectively become a one-party state. I should point out there were invited foreign observers 
from the US, Canada, Russia, and various other nations that said the general elections in Bangladesh were fair and free. But I have not vetted those sources to the point where I think they're going to cancel out with the State Department and the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and The Economist say about this. Uh, just very briefly before we dive into this, Bangladesh, eighth most populous country in the world, 174 million people, one of the most densely populated nations, and it lives just beyond the eastern tip of India. That's right. In it's fact, it is the most densely populated nation on earth that has a population greater than 10 million. And I think that one geodemographic factor actually touches just about every other thing that we might talk about. Even though we forecast, along with everybody else, that the election was essentially a foregone conclusion for the Awami League, I wanted to talk about Bangladesh just because it illustrates pretty much everything we ever talk about on this program. Uh, it's the global south, check. Flawed elections, check. check. Global supply chains, check. Uh, labor disputes, check. How about democracies devolving into autocracies? That's another good one. Unlike, for instance, the elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo that we covered a couple weeks ago, Bangladesh has had many competitive elections throughout its history. And it's devolved to the point where it is now where the election just wasn't competitive at all. And I think there's much that we can get to about this. But for instance, the Awami League, uh, led by Sheikh Hasina, is that is Sheikh Hasina herself is the daughter of Mujibur Rahman, who was the first the first leader of an independent Bangladeshi government after they broke away from Pakistan for a, for about a quarter century after the British withdrew from the Indian subcontinent, Bangladesh was East Pakistan. That it was that is it was part of the nation of Pakistan, even though it's separated by, by thousands of miles of by, India by a thousand miles. Yeah, uh, and so and in fact, they had very little culturally in common with the people of Pakistan other than simply being Muslim. The languages are different. The underlying cultural traditions are very, very different. And so they broke away from Pakistan in a horrifying civil war, which, of course, India took sides in uh, because in those days, going to war with Pakistan was something that India did with depressing regularity. Uh, after the civil war, Mujibur Rahman emerged as the first leader of Bangladesh until he was assassinated several years later. Yeah, widespread, a coup in 1975. That's right. Widespread unrest ensued, uh, at the end of which uh, the next leader of Bangladesh was uh, Zia Rahman, no relation, by the way, to Mujibur Rahman, who had just been assassinated. Zia was the founder of the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party. Which the BNP. That's right, which is still today the main opposition party in Bangladesh. And, and they boycotted they these boycotted elections. They boycotted these elections. The current head of the BNP is Zia Khaleda, or Khaleda Zia, who is the widow of Zia Rahman, who was also assassinated, by the way. Uh, 
And then about a decade of military dictatorship ensued, during which Khaled Zia and Sheikh Hasina joined forces. That's right. To mount very large civil society demonstrations against the military dictatorship, which were successful. And since then, basically throughout the 90s and the early part of this century, they had free and fair competitive elections up to a point. Yeah, and Zia was prime minister from 91 to 96. And uh, Sheikh Hasina was prime minister the first time from 96 to 01. That's right. And so they've basically been alternating in power uh, all that time. But once Sheikh Hasina regained control for the Awami League about 15 years ago, yeah. she immediately started cracking down on the BNP uh, to the point where, as we mentioned, the BNP just decided to boycott the election. Many of their leaders have been arrested. And uh, as opposed to, uh, and in addition to thousands of their party activists. So even if this election had been a competitive election, basically the entire history of Bangladeshi politics is sort of a struggle between these two families, apart from the 10 years of military dictatorship. And this is something that is disturbingly common, not just in Asia, but especially in ma many Asian countries. Uh, I think the, the ultimate example, of course, is North Korea, where since it's been a country that's been run by the father and then the son and now the grandson in the Kim dynasty. But many other Asian countries have political parties that are essentially family businesses, especially on the subcontinent. In Pakistan, the ruling party is a a family concern of the Sharif family. In uh, Sri Lanka, the ruling party also a family affair. In India itself, the opposition Congress party has always been uh, a, a concern of the Gandhi family, which has been running it since independence. And so... Uh, of course, it would have been preferable had these elections in Bangladesh been competitive, but it still wouldn't have been great because it's still a contest between these ancient institutions run by elder, elderly matriarchs. The good news is neither of them is going to live forever. Uh, at some point, it's possible that new leadership will take hold just by attrition, but that would depend on the party's instituting some sort of succession mechanisms, which can be tricky when one person has been running your party for decades. But just to leave the politics aside for a moment, uh, Bangladesh plays an important role in global supply chains, mainly because of the clothing industry, uh, which employs about 4% or so of the population. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but when you live in the most densely populated country on earth and one out of every 40 people in uh you I'm sorry it's, I think it's 2.5%. One out of every 40 people that uh works in clothing or textile manufacturing even if you don't work in that industry you know somebody who does. And again it's a whole lot of workers in a pretty small area of land uh, that is right on the Bay, Bay of Bengal, 
next to well-established shipping lanes. So you can see how this would be a good place to do something like this. While we were covering the United Auto Workers strike in the fall, Bangladeshi clothing workers were also on strike and secured an enormous amount of pay increases, something on the area of 56% pay increase, bringing their new monthly wage up to $114 or thereabouts. And it's partly because they now have access to modern telecommunications technology so that they can see how much people like us are paying for the clothing that they make, which for us is very little. These are not expensive clothes for us, but it's a great multiple of the wages they're getting. And so this has been a success story for them. They're also very successful to climate change. Uh, uh, yes. The, the headwaters- Severe weather the, hits them. Yes, the headwaters of the Brahmaporta River are declining because of less snowpack and rising sea levels are causing greater salinity into the Delta region of the Brahmaporta, which takes up pretty much the entire Southern region of the country. So there are many challenges facing Bangladesh. And because the election turned out the way it did, we might not have occasion to talk about Bangladesh anytime in the near future. So I wanted to make sure we talked about it today. That'll do it for us on this special Saturday edition. We'll be back this coming Friday with another edition of Working for Crusoe. Yes, we'll talk about the Taiwan elections, which have just been decided. Questions, comments, suggestions, Media at gmail.com. Check out our YouTube channel, John Ramey Media. He is Sam Park. I am John Ramey. Have a good rest of your weekend. Thanks, folks.